summer series we're doing um, on the fruits of the spirit. And um, there'll be a couple Sundays throughout the summer where Rusty will be away. Um, and so um, in between that, you just want to have a couple of us come and have the opportunity to preach. And we'll be like kind of basically peppering in uh, different psalms to go alongside the um, to go alongside the fruits of the spirit. And it's actually really sweet because as we start looking at the psalms, it's almost like it just gives us this, uh, you know, the where we got the fruits of the spirit. We, wow, that's getting loud all of a sudden. Are you adjusting something, Cody? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so as we look at the fruits of the Spirit, we look at how we want to live our lives in a way that brings fruit out. The emotions that go behind that and go with that, a lot of times are reflected in the Psalms. That's where we can see, like, how do we convey, uh, you know, our, our joy? How do we convey our, our suffering and our doubt, our, our fears, and also our hope? Um, and so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm uh, chapter 73. And so starting in verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me, to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away in utter terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, despise them, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. It, it, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray this morning. God, I just thank you uh, for the opportunity this morning to just see... Um, just this amazing example of your faithfulness, of your mercy, and of your love towards us. Um, God, as we talk this morning and we, we see this example of how to express our fears and our doubts in a way that actually looks to you for answers and gives you glory for them. Help us, God. Help us to change our hearts. Help us to be able to fight uh, our own minds and our own flesh as we battle against uh, our sin. Again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people here. Since we pray, Amen. So, uh, to share a little 
bit of a story about me that probably is a little too much information and a little embarrassing for me. But uh, uh, so growing up, I, I suffered from night terrors and uh, every, pretty much a large portion of my childhood, every night, like literally every night, I was terrified to go to bed. Uh, sometimes even uh, not going upstairs until I felt more assured that I would actually make it through the night. Um, and, and this came from, I would have nightmares, uh, and, and I think the, the real term is night terrors because you can't wake yourself up, you, and so it like lasts all night long. Um, my parents and even my wife can tell you crazy stories about, even to this day, how uh, I do crazy things in my sleep. I talk, I sleepwalk, I throw teddy bears across the room and punch walls. Um, and so, so yeah, very interesting uh, if you ever sleep anywhere near me. Um, but uh, it came from these, these awful dreams I would have, and I would be, I would be just so terrified of them that, uh, like I said, I, I wouldn't want to go to my room. Um, at times, I wouldn't stay in my room, and my dad would uh, hold the door closed um, until I agreed to stay in my bed. Um, and so, uh, I actually developed this thing after my parents would be so sweet and tuck me in, reassuring me that I am going to be okay, that there isn't a monster, even though actually there was a screech owl outside my window, and that was terrifying as a little kid. Um, uh, after they would reassure me, I still had all these doubts and fears, and it, it even got to the point where I developed this about 30 minute long prayer, where I listed out in a certain order every movie and book character that ever frightened me, every villain, every creature, every spider, every, every monster in my imagination, and I had to list them out in this certain order. It took me about 30 minutes to list it all out. And if I prayed it, I felt, hey, I'm going to be okay tonight, I'm going to sleep. And sometimes that worked, and sometimes I would still have these nightmares, in which case the next day I would change the order, because obviously I had messed up something. And so it just kept extending. I would create new imaginary characters that were scary, and then I would, uh, I would have to increase the prayer. Um, and, and for a, the longest time, sorry, it was a fly. <laughs> uh, for the longest time, that is, that is how I was able to make it through sleeping, is, is by doing this prayer. Uh, but yet, I still didn't even trust in that. I had all these doubts and insecurities about making it through the night. And... Uh, so I say that to, as we talk about Psalm 73 this morning, um, in a more serious way, the psalmist is showing us what it looks like to share and vocalize our doubts and our fears, and what do we do with them. Um, there's this growing, uh, I don't know if you would say a culture problem, but, but there's something that we learn uh, a lot of times in, in or out of the church, but but especially if you've grown up in the church, you, you probably have heard something about like how we, sh we shouldn't doubt our faith and, and that good Christians don't have doubts. And so what happens when we, when we believe that is that we either just embrace the ignorance and say, you're right, I guess I'm just, I'm just silly and you know, whatever, I, I, don't, I don't actually have these doubts. And then uh, either we continue to live our lives in a way that just says when we come across a problem or, or uh, you know, you're, you're confused about something going on in life, or you, you're reading scripture and you're like, I, I, don't, I don't really understand this. Your response is like, well, I don't have to understand it. And you can, you can be completely oblivious and pretend it doesn't exist. Or we like swallow those doubts and then they build up, they build up, they build up inside our minds. And then uh, later on in life, we will encounter somebody, prob probably an unbeliever, who says they have an answer to it. And that answer proves, you know, that, 
the Bible contradicts itself. Or the answer is, you know, you know, it's, it's to give examples. Maybe it's like a professor in college. Maybe it's maybe it's science. Maybe it's logic. Maybe it's you know just uh, stating out facts. Um, but we hear that, and now it's like, okay, well, I thought I wasn't supposed to have these doubts, and the only person who's giving me these answers is this guy who's an unbeliever and says that this isn't true. And naturally, we start to sway that way to it as well. And never once do we like actually say like, oh, it's okay to vocalize that I don't know this and I'm worried or I've gone through this situation and I don't know what the, the outcome of it is. Um, and so the psalmist just gives us this great example of, of being able to vocalize this and see our answers met. We start with verse one. He says, truly God is good to Israel. Now, I want to stop here because this is something that we see throughout Scripture. We see um, this pattern of, of, of setting apart Christ as Lord. And you see it in some, some letters and books that were written. Um, that They start their letter with addressing God as holy or just giving adoration to God before they list their correction or encouragement. And, and it's just this, this great rooting statement um, that's made. And it's made in different ways. But essentially, we're going to say, hey, God, you are holy. You are your king. And now I need, to, I need to explain that I am not, I don't have perfect knowledge. I don't, I don't understand, or, or maybe I'm telling, I'm talking to someone and, and they don't understand. But we do know that God is, is good. And when he says God is good, we want to make sure we understand the weightiness of that. We're not saying that there is this universal objective standard of good, and we can go measure God, and then when we measure God, we say, yeah, he passed the test, and yeah, God is good. What we're saying is, is that we don't know what good is outside of God. He is our definition. So what he does is good. And that has deep effects when we say that. You know, when we, when we get that promotion at work, God, you've done this. You are good. And when we lose our job at work, God, you are good. And you are working out your goodness for us. We see evidence of that as the psalmist continues in verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. And when he says this, he's not saying like, like I was going along and I almost slipped, but I caught myself or something like that. He's giving the glory to God because he's saying that if it was for me, that as for me, if, if I was going to go down my path with my power, my, my ability, my knowledge, I would have fallen. I would have you know, gone off the cliff, I would be in the ditch, and, and that would be it. But thanks to God's goodness, he has kept me. He has kept me through what I'm about to explain and what I'm about to uh, share, all the frustration and suffering I went through. His goodness is what has was held me in place. This idea of setting apart Christ as Lord, we can see, like I said, through multiple places in Scripture. But one of them would be 1 Peter 3.15. This is a verse that's common use as like a foundation for our apologetic. It's a verse that talks about giving a reason defense. Um, but something that a lot of people forget to do in the beginning is, is quote the first part of the verse, which says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as, or sorry, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a reason defense for anyone who asks with the hope that is in you. And that's important because if, if we don't set apart Christ as Lord, if we don't make him our holy foundation and standard, our, our own knowledge, our own ability can fail. It can be refuted, it can be uh, questioned, or, or our own just uh, fortitude to trust in God can be questioned at times when we face suffering. 
Um, but setting apart Christ as holy in our lives is what is, roots us. So, continuing with, uh, with, with the Psalms, um, he, he continues with, uh, after verse 3, and he's continuing basically with the, he's going to lay out two perspectives. He's going to say, basically the first part is the as for me. The, when, I, when I continue in my understanding, my ability, and my knowledge, this is what I see and what emotions and what struggle I went through. And then later we're going to see what happens when we say as for Christ, as for God. Um, and so he starts with saying that I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And just thinking about that, he knows the truth, but he's okay with saying, I would rather be believing a lie or denying the truth. Because for some reason, even though God has said that we should obey his law, that we should trust him, I see these people who don't, and they seem to be doing all right. And, and this, this is something, we, we don't use the term wicked too often unless we're from the Jersey Shore. But uh, we, uh, when we think of wicked, we think of uh, examples of how, how we see this in our everyday life. It's the person who, who cheats, who steals, who lies in order to get what they want, to get ahead. I'd like us to kind of throw it out there like we do sometimes um, to actually answer. Where do we see this? What have you seen in your life where... You see the person who did not do the honest thing, and yet they got what they wanted. Yeah. This person that ran this ad campaign, told this lie, took this money, about growing up in school, you know, there's definitely, and I, I actually will admit I was one of them I, that, that copied answers and, in order to get the the grade you wanted, or to not have to do the work. What else do we see? And there's a lot more examples if we had time to think through them, I'm sure. But as the psalmist is looking through this and he, he's just seeing the people around him, he's seeing the ones who are, are doing well, the ones who don't seem to be arguing, the ones who don't seem to be suffering, they don't seem to have illnesses, they don't seem to, to, to really want for food or shelter. They don't seem to be the people who are like him and are striving to, to live honestly, to, to uphold the law and glorify God. And as he starts looking at this, and he starts getting this, this confusion, this frustration, these doubts in his mind, it doesn't help that the, the people who he's, he's seeing this happen to are also seeing it. They look and they say, they, they, they look at their lives and they say, like, hey, like, there's these people over here, and they, they have this law that they're trying to uphold, and apparently that, according to their God, it says that they will have life, they will have, have blessings and goodness and provision. And, and they look kind of hungry. They look like they're, they're kind of desiring some stuff that I already have because I do things the way I want. I get what I want. I take. I, I, don't, I don't uphold to their, their authority. And I'm, I'm essentially, I'm, I'm living my best life now. And they're happy for it. And when they, when they look at the, the people trying to uphold God's law, not only do they, they see the disconnect that, that, that the psalmist is also seeing, 
they're arrogant about it, and they, they blaspheme. They say, they say, like, does your God even know? Does he see me? Because according to you, I should be miserable. I should be in, in, in pain and suffering. I shouldn't be getting what I want, and yet I am, and I'm happy for it. And, and they, they ask if God even has knowledge of what they're doing or can stop them. And the psalmist hears this, and it's like a dagger on top of the pain he's already feeling. He's like, I mean, I don't have an answer for that because I also feel this frustration. I also don't know what, what's going on because yeah God says that like like judgment should be upon you and yet you're thriving and, and yet like me and my neighbors are, are, are struggling here so as we look at this disconnect that he's feeling as we as we as he continues to just try to figure out what is going on we need to look at what he's measuring because and we all know that there isn't, there isn't billionaires who, who can say, I, I have, I've never had any suffering or pain. I've never, uh, I've never struggled. There isn't famous people who say, I don't have worries or doubts or suffering. Um, and, and whatever the standard is that we're putting as what we want to look at and compare to, the psalmist is giving us like they have no pains, they have no troubles until they reach death. And, everyone has troubles so obviously we're setting a measurement on something else we're valuing something other than what the other person's valuing and then we're only seeing what we're trying to measure we're not seeing the whole story because again like I said there's we can go talk to whoever we want to at whatever level of status power or wealth and and they're going to say that yeah they they, they have loved ones who get sick and that they they have worries and doubts and fears as well this is a great quote here from Martin Lord Jones. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you listen to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, that might sound a little confusing at first because you're like, I don't see how talking to myself is supposed to be the right vaccine I'm supposed to take away from here. Uh, but, but what he's saying is, is, is a common thing that most of us probably can pull up an example pretty quickly of. Um, when you get into an argument with somebody, or you, you, you refuse to, but you had some kind of conflict, um, when someone's mistreated you, or you've been taken advantage of, you go back in your head, and you start having that conversation again, and, and you start coming up with all these responses, and, and all of a sudden, this cheerleading section develops in your head, and you like come up with this response, and, and all of a sudden, you hear, yeah, that's, that's so witty. If you had said that, you would have you destroyed them. You would have completely won the argument, you, you should go back and have that argument. You know, like, like you, you, start, you start developing this. And, and you see some people, like, they're, they're pacing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I, I am. I am. I am right in this. I, I have. I, I'm, I'm so. I, I've been so mistreated, so unfair. I should go tell my boss what's up. And, and so we keep, we keep building this, uh, this. This cheerleading section gets louder and louder and louder. And what, what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is that we actually need to be, like, grabbing ourselves, shaking ourselves, Smacking ourselves in the face, saying, like, listen, gain some perspective, gain some humility, understand that, like, you're not the only human being on earth right now. The sad thing is, is that when we allow talking to ourselves to be the key response to when we have this, this conflict, it, it, it tends to snowball, and we, we tend to increase in self-pity. And, and that typically will lead us to this place where we have 
uh, we start building up this comparison. And that's what the psalmist starts to do. He's now had this conflict. He's had people who, who like take jabs at it on top of it. And, and now he's like, he's like, I just don't understand. So he has this, this myopic view of, of their wealth or, or their prosperity and not seeing where they, they also struggle. And then he starts focusing on how they lack holiness, how they have, uh, they have wrong. They have not followed God. They have not loved Him, and and they they make this 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 super narrow focus on these people, and then that makes it really easy to say, but I have, and that's what he says right here when um, when we get to verse twelve and fifteen. He says, "Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning." And he's just basically heaping on the, the self-pity here and also saying, like, look at me. Like, I've done this. I have, I have upheld the law. And, and the truth is, we know that he hasn't because none of us have. Um, we can see examples of this with, with Jesus and the rich young ruler. Man comes to him and says, says hey, I, like, master, what do I do next? I have, I have, I have done the law. I have, I have upheld it. I've completed it. Checked every box. And Jesus knows his heart. He sees him and he says, go and sell everything you have. And the guy walks away disappointed because he has this idol that he's hung on to that is above God and, and, and he won't let go of it. And in the same way, when the psalmist says, like, I have done all these things, he truly has it. He's tried. And we want to make sure we acknowledge that although he, he has not upheld the law, he does try. And that's where we, that's where we are as a church. We're, we are struggling with our, our flesh versus our soul and heart. We want to please God. We want to serve him. And yet we still have these desires. We still, we still have these struggles and we still have these worries. And when we allow them to go unchecked, when we allow to have these doubts, to not vocalize them and seek answers for them, it really takes us to two different paths. And one is the complete rejection of God and his word. And, and a, a great example of that is, is uh, the Mormon founder, Joseph Smith. Um, according to his own testimony, he says that, that he encountered all these churches. He didn't know which one to join. Um, he didn't know which denomination was correct. Um, and so what he does, he do, he runs to the woods. And in the woods, according to his testimony, originally he meets an angel. Then later he changes his testimony to say he met Heavenly Father. And then again he changes his testimony once again to Heavenly Father and Jesus as two separate human forms. And so, so you can already see some craziness happening there with the changes. But, but he comes out of the woods and now he says, look, those churches, their creeds, what they believe, the songs they sing, everything is an abomination. It's of the devil. And I'm going to now write a New Testament of the Bible, and it will create a new Jesus, a Jesus that I can continually edit, I, the Jesus I can continually make into my desires and comfort level. And again, that, like I said, that could sound crazy, but we go there when we start allowing us to be the deciding factor. The other place it takes us to is where we say we do need Jesus, we do need to, to try to please him, but I also need to, I have these desires, and the only way I can get them is if I take. And we see a great example of this in Ananias and Sapphira. It's early on in the church, we have this couple who sees these people selling their belongings, giving to the church, being blessed and feeling joyful about it. And they want that. They want that happiness and that blessing. They want that notoriety of being able to give to the church. 
And so what they do is they go and they sell land, and then they take those proceeds, and they take them to the church, and they say, hey, we've sold this land, we want to give it to the church. But the truth is, is that they've given a portion while they said it was everything, and they've kept some for themselves so they can also maintain their own riches. And Peter discerns this, and God strikes them dead right there. And they use, this is used uh, in the church as, as this, this great example of the seriousness that God has for his, for, for his church and also for, for us in regards to our sin and, and also being just satisfied in him. But what we see in both of these, in the complete rejection of God and in the, the, the idea of wanting to have God but also take whatever we want as our own desires, they ultimately lead to where Ananias and Sapphira le led to, which is death. And thankfully, though, we're not left with those two options. Our God has not abandoned us. He cares about the emotions that we have. He cares about the struggle and about the fears we have. And where our own cheerleading section inside our head, the as-for-me method, leads us to death, he gives us life. He brings us a better suffering servant. We can look in verse 30, or, oh, sorry, Psalm 37, verses 7 and 8. And before we, before we go there, Psalm 37 is, is a really cool verse or chapter um, just because of the comparison between 73 and 37. They, they basically are talking to each other. They're the exact same themes. So if you have time, go back and look at it. If we had all day, it would be great to just sit there and analyze exactly all the comparisons. But we'll do the best we have with the remaining four hours. Um, and so, so verse 30, or chapter 37, verses 7 through 8. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his ways, over the man who carries out evil devices. Compare that to the psalmist who's saying, I see the evil. I see them carrying out what they, what they want. And I am fretting. I am scared. I am doubting what, if you're a true God. We see, like I said, Jesus is the better suffering servant. Look at the passage from the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew. Um, he says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is about to go through the worst suffering and the worst injustice that's ever happened on earth. And yet, he takes, he takes his, his, his fear of the suffering that is to come, and he gives it to God and says, I, I will trust in you. But to even, even though he's about to face more suffering than the psalmist has, let's go and add even more to this. He goes back to his friends, and his disciples are sleeping hours before the last moments he's going to have with them before the cross. His friends can't even stay awake. So he goes to Peter, and he says, so you could not watch with me one hour? And he says, tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink from it, your will be done. See, where we, where we try and we fail and we struggle, and then we go into doubt, we go into further sin, Jesus does not. He takes his fears he takes, he takes the suffering that he's going to have to endure, and he says, God, you are good. You are holy. 
I'm going to do what you have commanded. So the psalmist, thankfully, does not fall to ruin and death in this suffering. In verse 17, it says, or actually go back to uh, go back a couple verses to 15. It says, I'm sorry, 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. The psalmist is broken. He's, he's gone through so much. He still has no answers. And he's at his end. And what does he do? He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So the psalmist goes to where he can pray. He goes to where the scripture is. He goes to where God has answered the question. And he brings his frustrations. He brings his doubts. And it doesn't say that years later, God shows how this plan was being worked out. It doesn't say that like eventually he gains understanding. He goes to God. He goes to his sanctuary. And God answers him. He secures these doubts. He says, Truly, they set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And then he goes on to realize where he's been. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Notice the, the, how he's describing himself here. It's actually even worse than how he was describing the wicked people at the beginning who he was envious of their arrogance. He understands that, that without God's grace and mercy, that he is just as bad or worse. And so the beauty of this, though, is that when the psalmist went to Scripture, when he went to God, He's not, he's, le- he's not left answerless anymore, and neither are we. When we see, as, as he continues, and as we can look through the rest of Scripture as well, we see some themes that come out that help us have security. The first one is that God is good. A reminder of the first verse the psalmist says. We can also see it in Romans 8, 28. And we know that those who love God, all things work for good, or look alert for the good of those who are called according to his will. Again, we define good by what he does. And we know that what he does is working out for his glory at all times. Secondly, we see his mercy. Psalm 86, verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A psalmist can even recognize the mercy he's been given as he declares himself a beast towards God and embittered towards him. He knows that that God could have struck him down dead, could have cursed him, could have uh, given him the judgment that he deserved. And yet he showed mercy so that the psalmist may come back to him in love. And that's what he's doing as well with with the wicked that we see. And when we look at around the people who who have have cheated, who have gone past us and caused us to be uh, taken advantage of, the people who we praise highly in the world, the famous people, the rich people, and, and we wonder, what is God doing? Has he forgotten about them and how they got all of this, this power and all this wealth? We can know that actually it's, it's by his mercy that he, he keeps them alive. It's by his mercy that he allows them to, to be where they're at. And in even what they do, we can look back at Joseph and see how, how God works things out for good even when people mean them for evil. And then most importantly, I think we see here, is that God is just. 
As, as people of God, we care about justice. And that's because we're made in the image of God. When we, when we encounter injustice, when we see people mistreated, there's something inside us that, that says, this isn't right. How, how, how are people getting away with this? And that's good. Because we, we want to care about the things that God cares about. And God cares about justice. But thankfully, as Christians, we actually have a foundation for knowing that when we see the wrong person go to jail and the wrong person walk free of the court steps, when we see the mistreated and the abused, we know that the wicked do not escape judgment. No one escapes God's, God's gaze. He, can, he knows everything, all of our hearts, all of our, all of our sin. And one day, everyone will stand for an account of it. Thankfully, though, because Jesus also, like with the rich young ruler, knows our hearts. He knows, he knows our sin, our idols, the things we want to hide in the dark. And he's paid the price for them. So that when we stand before the judge, we stand with the blood of Jesus. So as we look and we see these answers come, we want to know where, where is our place in this. After we've been secured, what, what then? The psalmist says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what we want our cry to be. That 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 even though things are hard, that even though suffering comes, that Christ is our portion forever. And we want to understand the weightiness of saying that. It, it, it doesn't come easy because by saying that you are my portion and I need nothing else on earth, that means there will be sacrifice and there will be suffering. As we look around the room, we can even see there's some of us who know right now in this moment what it feels like to say, God, take my health, but give me you. Take my job, but give me you. You can take anything. Take my family, take my money, take my job, take my life, but give me you. We want to understand how we don't say that with, with uh, carefreeness. We say that with, uh, with the same passion and love that God has for us because the good news is, is when, when we say, God, give me you, he is faithful to do so. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you'll see this. This is like cross-stitched on every Lifeway pillow, and it's, uh, it's written on Bible covers, and it, it's, it's taught in a lot of different ways. And a lot of times we compare it to what we hear in the prosperity gospel. Of if you have something that you're desiring, just, just go to God, delight in him. You need to like change your attitude, and then he's going to give you what you're desiring. And, and what this verse is actually saying is that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, our heart should say, we want more of the Lord. And then he is faithful to say, yeah, I will give you more of me. And what we do with this is important as well. God doesn't offer the security. He doesn't offer more of himself for us to just hoard and say, thank you, now I have security. The last verse of, of Psalms 73 says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell 
of all your works. This is missional. We're, we're here to, to have our, our, our doubts secured, but then to go and tell others there's hope, there's an answer, there's a foundation for why there's injustice and knowing that justice will eventually be served. We can tell people, we can tell that there's justice for the victims, that there's grace for the lawbreakers, and that there's peace for the violence. So as we think through this, as we, as we truly consider what it is to say, God, just give me you and take away the idols that I feel right now. Let's just rest in knowing that our God is faithful to us to give us what he has promised. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you again. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy in our lives. 